It's been a week since Israel began its ground war in Gaza. The incursion has drawn comparisons with other wars, particularly those fought in urban areas, like the war in Iraq and the battles with ISIS that followed. It's a comparison that the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has been keen to encourage. Hamas should be treated exactly the way ISIS was treated. They should be spit out from the community of nations. Israel's government says it wants to eliminate Hamas. But is that an objective that can be achieved? We've been speaking to the former Major General, who was once the UK's most senior commander in Iraq, tasked with eliminating ISIS. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, is Israel's war with Hamas winnable? My name is Rupert Jones, former British Army Major General. During the operation to defeat ISIS, Daesh, in the Middle East in 2016 and 2017, I was the deputy commander of the US-led coalition, and so we had the experience of supporting our Iraqi partners during the liberation of Mosul, Iraq's second city, and also of Raqqa in Syria, which ISIS declared as the capital of their so-called caliphate. Rupert, one of the messages at the moment that the Israeli government has been trying to get across, and you know they've brought it up in a number of interviews, is that Hamas is the same as ISIS, that we should think of them as ISIS. What are the similarities, but also what are the differences? I mean, does that comparison hold up? Yes, I think we've got to be a little bit careful of drawing those parallels. You know, Hamas is a Palestinian-based organisation with very strong backing from Iran, with a very clear objective, which is around posing a threat to indeed eliminating Israel. That was not ISIS's aim. ISIS was a much broader ideology based around establishing a Islamic caliphate. And indeed, you know, the way they fight is very different. So, you know, Hamas are very much of Gaza. They may well not represent all Palestinians. I'm quite certain they don't, but they've grown up from within the Gaza Strip. Mm. Um, they're fighting from a home base, if you like, in a way that ISIS were not. So when ISIS were in Mosul, yes, they were embedded there for a couple of years before we, we went back in, but they were largely outsiders. So this wasn't their home territory that they were, they were fighting for. Exactly. And so, again, you know, there's, there's plenty of parallels. The counter-ISIS campaign in, in Iraq was really a series of urban fights, but there's plenty of differences. And one of the biggest differences, of course, is in the case of Iraq, Prime Minister Badi and his security forces were liberating their cities. The challenge that Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Israeli Defence Forces faces is very, very significant, but they're different in nature. When you were you know, looking after the operations in Mosul, there was an aim to eradicate ISIS. The Israelis are now talking about eliminating Hamas. Is that something that can be achieved? Prime Minister Netanyahu's narrative of eliminating Hamas, I mean, that's a very difficult military objective. You can't properly eliminate. You can defeat, but the actual concept of elimination 
feels more rhetoric than being a a genuine military strategy. You know, for me, what the, what if I was the Israeli generals, I would be asking myself, okay, so what I, what we need to do is destroy Hamas to such a degree that they no longer pose a threat as an effective fighting force and that they cannot mount the sort of attack that they mounted on the 7th of October, at least into the medium to long term. I think that is a credible objective that the generals can offer back to Prime Minister Netanyahu. It's still incredibly difficult, but it is a credible military objective. You know, as somebody who's faced similar decisions in the past, is there a fear that if you end up with a big military operation in a region like Gaza, you're there creating a new generation of Hamas rather than eliminating them. This is exactly the challenge. You can kill Hamas's commanders, you can kill Hamas's foot soldiers, but as people always say, what you can't do is you can't destroy an idea. So, you know, that's one would hope a central part of the thinking going on in, in the Netanyahu government. How can we prevent my term, not theirs, Hamas 2.0 coming out of the ashes and creating a threat into the next generation? What do we know about the current state of Israel's war in Gaza? You know, bearing in mind the flow of information is obviously very limited. If you look at a map, they've come in from the sort of northern tip of the Gaza Strip on two axes, one up against the sea and one, one a bit further east. And they've also got an axis further south, cutting off north and south Gaza. What they're doing is they're isolating northern Gaza. Hmm. Israel intensified its ground operation today. Releasing this video, it says, shows troops operating deep inside northern Gaza. In the last few hours, Benjamin Netanyahu announced that Israeli troops are, quote, at the height of the battle. Engaging in face-to-face -face battles. They say they have encircled entirely Gaza City. In some ways, it is sort of medieval. It is surrounding a city. In all my time of watching Israeli military action going into Gaza, this looks like the most intense I've ever seen. During the battle for Mosul, the Iraqis did something very similar. They didn't isolate the whole city, it was too big. But it took them, from memory, a couple of weeks to get into the city itself. And Rupert, just give us a sense. If you're a soldier on the ground facing quite an extended battle probably in an urban area. What are you thinking? I mean, what does that feel like? And if, if you were leading an operation like that now, what would be going through your mind? Well, I think there's some two elements to that, isn't there? There's what it feels like to be the commander. So they've got a dual mission in a way, destroying Hamas and rescuing as many hostages as possible. And those two things at times will feel in slight tension with each other. But in a way, at times like this, it's easier for the commanders. For the troops, there's a, there's a mantra in the military, we talk about uh, hurry up to wait. So you spend a huge amount of your time waiting, waiting, waiting. And then there's this period of brutal activity. And then it calms down again and you wait before you go again. 
So for the soldiers, they will have been through a very, very tense two or three weeks, you know, hyped up when they were first mobilized. Then they had to wait and very, very nerve wracking. That's why Israeli commanders were talking about, we can't, we can't stay waiting for too long. It's a bit like a sportsman, you know, you're ready for the Olympic final and then it's delayed two months. You, you can't keep yourself at that very heightened state for, for a long period of time. Mm. Once the heart of the urban fight begins, there's no harder environment for a soldier to fight in than a city. Huge stress, incredibly tiring, the intensity of it. Yeah, just huge pressure on them. And just explain to people who haven't done it. You know, I know people often talk about the ratios of soldiers you need in an urban area where, you know, the people who live there obviously know every nook and cranny. Yes, exactly that. So you need a higher ratio of forces than you would in a in a rural area. So in the open country, typically we talk about needing a three to one advantage as the attacker in a city. People sometimes say you need as much as a 10 to one advantage. So why is it harder? Well, firstly, because it's very difficult to manoeuvre. So you can see the Israelis are going in with tanks and armoured vehicles and bulldozers. But physically moving in a city that has been subject to airstrikes is incredibly difficult. There's rubble everywhere. There's detritus. Everything is an obstacle to your movement. The soldiers are clambering over rubble and knock down walls. The second thing you've got to do is find your enemy. The enemy's hiding in the rubble. Everything is a potential firing position. And not only are you trying to find uh, Hamas amongst the rubble, but the civilians there too. So who's a civilian? Who's Hamas? And what happens very quickly is your technological advantage gets blunted. You know, your 21st century tanks can't manoeuvre in the way that you want them to. Your sensors are denied because it's just rubble everywhere. You, you can't see anything. You can't bring your modern weapons to bear. So what typically happens in battles in the city is that you're drawn to an attritional form of warfare much more readily, by which I mean airstrikes, attack from helicopters. It could be artillery because you're trying to minimize your own casualties. That in turn causes yet more rubbleization of the city. Yes, it'll probably kill Hamas, but if there's civilians in and around the battlefield still, that has dire consequences for them. Yeah. The difference between urban warfare anywhere else and Gaza, I guess, you know, the the extra layer of complexity is, is the tunnels. Tell us what we know about the extent of the tunnels under Gaza. Every urban fight, city fight, has a subterranean element to it. Of course it does, because there's sewers, there's cellars, there are tunnels under most cities. But what we see is Hamas is in, in Gaza is taken to a wholly different level. And, and you, you read at different figures, but somewhat, you know, in excess of 300 miles, it feels a, a reasonable medium point of how many tunnels are under the Gaza Strip. So that allows Hamas to do any number of things. It allows them to move around the city out of sight. It allows them to store weapons, ammunition, uh, weapon-making facilities, all their infrastructure underground. It also, of course, allows them to potentially hold hostages underground. Putting troops down in those tunnels is an incredibly dangerous 
undertaking. I mean, the Americans experienced this in Vietnam, way back in, in the Vietnam War. Fighting in tunnels is just a, is not a nice thing to have to do and really, really does favour the defender. Booby traps, all sorts of things down there waiting for you. So the Israelis have specialist units who can operate in their tunnels. They can use robots. But they will seek to put as few people down into those tunnels as possible. And what we are seeing is, to the maximum degree possible, they're going to try and destroy those tunnels from above by striking the entrance to tunnels and collapsing them. One direct similarity between what's happening in Gaza now and what you had to look after in Mosul is the role of a hospital. So at the moment, Israel is talking about the Al-Shifa hospital, one of the biggest in Gaza, where they claim there is a Hamas base underneath it and whether that makes it a legitimate target. Tell us a bit about the sort of decisions you had to make and whether a hospital would be a legitimate target. So our enemies, ISIS, Hamas, for the Israelis in, in this case, they understand the limitations on our use of force. They understand the law of armed conflict and they understand that Western militaries, the Israelis, we and as the counter-ISIS coalition, will seek to the very best of our ability to uphold those standards of, of law. And that means these this standards of proportionality, legitimacy, not striking certain targets, so religious buildings, hospitals, for example. Now, of course, the difficulty is that your enemy then uses those laws, often fight from the buildings you, they know you can't strike. So we had a, a hospital in Mosul. There were similar scenarios in Raqqa where ISIS were using the hospitals very clearly as fighting positions. They were hiding behind the Red Cross, if you like, of the hospital. And we vexed for extended periods of times with our Iraqi partners about the point at which you judged it was no longer a hospital. It, it had been a hospital, but it was no longer delivering care to casualties, and it was now just a fighting position. Uh, and we thought very long and hard about it. What could we do to dislodge the ISIS who were in the hospital using snipers and other techniques before at some point judging, OK, th this building is no longer afforded the protection of being a hospital. And uh, you know, the Israelis are clearly going through similar sorts of discussions. Ultimately, what you have to decide with any target in a city, it might be a residential tower block. You can't just go and bomb a tower block because it's a civilian residence. But when Hamas then use it as a fighting position, it becomes potentially a legitimate target. And what the Israelis then have to judge is the proportionality of striking it. So forgive my clumsy example, but if there's a single sniper in the building mm. and there's a thousand residents living in it at the time, it doesn't feel proportionate to strike the building and have the whole building collapse. But you can imagine different permutations of that where it's a for sake of argument, a Hamas headquarters, but there are civilians who might be casualties if you strike it. That is then a judgment call for commanders with lawyers helping them. 
and the Israelis, as we had to in Mosul, then have to stand up and be counted afterwards about whether or not you applied the law of armed conflict correctly. But but those you know they, those ultimately come down to judgments. I would say what something we found helpful is that we worked quite closely with the ICRC, the International International Committee of the Red Cross, and shared with them the processes we, we used. We clearly couldn't share detail, but we shared the process, the targeting process we went through, the intelligence assessment we went through, our judgments around proportionality. Of course, that doesn't mean the ICRC head off and are advocates of ours, but, but what it does mean, it gives you transparency of the process. And I, I would personally like to see the Israelis doing something uh, similar. It could be they've done that behind the scenes. Although we, we should probably mention that the ICRC have talked so far about Gazan hospitals being turned into morgues and there's real fear that they're running out of fuel and power. So all of that will presumably be part of any calculation before before the Al-Shifa hospital is is hit. Yes, indeed. And I think, mm. you know, the, the other thing that, as I say, there's so many differences, aren't there, between Mosul and Gaza. But having independent journalists embedded with the Israeli forces who are able to independently tell the story, I think would be helpful to Israel's case. And, and the other thing I'd, you know, that's really important is as, as they break into the city, and they have done this in the past, and you one must hope they're going to do it again, is that behind the assaulting troops are uh, stabilization forces and agencies to help provide medical treatment and care and humanitarian support to the civilians who, who are left behind. You know, that, that is absolutely vital because otherwise, well, firstly, if you don't have stabilization forces, you're going to get attacked in the rear by stay behind elements of, of Hamas. But secondly, you simply can't advance through the city and then not tend to the civilians and indeed the wounded Hamas who are now on your side of the front line. Coming up, how does this war end? We'll look at a few of the possible scenarios. That's in just a moment. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As you say, it's very hard to get a picture of what's happening. There aren't many independent journalists on the ground who are able to report on it at the moment. There was an incident on Tuesday afternoon, which again, you know, we haven't been able to verify a lot of the details around, but Hamas says Israel bombed a refugee camp, killing 50 people. The IDF has confirmed that there was a bombing and they've killed a senior Hamas leader. We've seen pictures of horrendous carnage and and rubble. Is bombing a refugee camp in order to kill a Hamas commander? You know, you've been talking about proportionality. Would that qualify? Well, the, and, and this is where it's a little bit difficult to judge, isn't it? Because we're getting sort of claim and, and counterclaim. My understanding what the Israelis claim they did, and I haven't seen the, the footage, and of course I'm not privy to the intelligence, is that they struck a tunnel area where there was a considerable amount of Hamas infrastructure, and that in doing so, some buildings were undermined and collapsed next to, to the tunnel entrance. And that led to civilian casualties. Now, it's those sorts of things that have to be assessed in in the fullness of time. I think it's reasonable to challenge that, but accept it as a version. And then over time, there'll be, I would hope, a proper investigation of what did or did not happen there. And Rupert, in the meantime, we're told the strategy is to go after Hamas leadership. Do... Israel know where they are. And, and, you know, we know the very public face of Hamas is in Doha. Do they become targets or are they the people who Israel negotiates with? I think, yes, I think they can't go after the uh, Hamas political leadership who are outside Gaza. I think that would be way beyond any permutation of of self-defence and beyond the tolerance of the international community. So you're dealing with the Hamas commanders who are in the Gaza Strip, the military commanders. Do they know their locations? Well, the Israelis, despite the intelligence failing on the 7th of October, routinely have very good intelligence about Hamas. Over the last three weeks, they will have committed huge amounts of intelligence to locate the commanders they want to strike at them. And they tell us on a daily basis that they have been slowly killing Hamas commanders. What I think we haven't heard enough of from the Israelis is how much progress they are making against their overall uh, objectives. So to tell us on a daily basis how many targets have been struck, how many commanders have been killed, is perfectly valid information, but, but it is only of, it's of finite relevance. What I think we need to begin to hear from the Israelis three weeks in is the progress they are making towards their objective of eliminating Hamas. Because otherwise, all we've got is levels of destruction, the Hamas ministry telling us how many Palestinians have been killed, and then people staring at maps about where the Israeli defence forces have got to on the ground. And, And that doesn't really add up to progress. And Rupert, everyone wants to know 
how this ends. One scenario that's been talked about a bit recently after a document from Israel's intelligence ministry came to light. And the Israeli government, we should say, has been keen to downplay this, saying it was a concept paper and not necessarily a blueprint for policy. But this paper seemed to suggest that the whole population of Gaza should be removed and sent to Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. Now, we've talked a bit about international law. Is that a policy that Israel could actually pursue, or would that be regarded as ethnic cleansing? Inevitably, there will be more extreme elements of the Israeli debate that might be considering some quite extreme permutations. Personal level, I don't think those sort of conversations are are helpful. I also have faith in the international community's ability to advise and work with Israel, not just clearly the United States, but the Arab nations who have a real vested interest in this conflict not escalating and ensuring that there's not a complete vacuum in Gaza once whatever this military operation looks like comes to an comes to an end. And we know it feels like the the Palestinian administration has all but broken down and its institutions have, have all broken but broken down. So it feels clear that outside assistance is going to be needed to start the very painful process of recovery, if I can call it that, for the Palestinians. I think the bulk of the kind of balanced, moderate voices in Israel understand this. They know they've got to be very careful. They know they're time limited with the international community. They know that they have, off the back of Hamas's atrocities, they have the rule of law on their side at the outset, by which I mean they are permitted to act in self-defense. Where they have to be incredibly careful is it does not transition into what feels like a operation of retribution as opposed to self-defense. And also, I think if I can just bring you back to what we spoke about earlier about the Israeli soldiers on the ground, they will be angry. They will have friends, family who have been brutally murdered or held hostage by Hamas. If you've got angry soldiers in a very, very intense combat environment where it's hard to identify your enemy, you know, you're literally fighting for your life. In these circumstances, there is an increased danger of soldiers conducting law of armed conflict violations just at a, at a low level. Yeah. And it requires very strong leadership to set the tone and make sure that that does not happen. Obviously, we can't predict what will happen in the next few days and weeks and months. But what are the sort of scenarios that you can see emerging? So, you know, sort of like, does this go on for months? Is there a victory? What happens to Gaza after that? Yes. So... And, and so could, could it could in, it spiral out of control? <laughs> yeah, so let me give you a sort of almost a best case and, and, and a worst case. Yeah. So the best case scenario goes something like this. The Israeli Defence Forces conduct a military operation in northern Gaza Strip. They achieve their objectives relatively quickly. They're able to make the case that they have 
imposed enough damage on Hamas that promised Netanyahu's requirements have been met. And they managed to do that without losing the international community's support. And they managed to do that quickly enough such that the war does not spread. So Iranian-backed proxies, Lebanese Hezbollah, for example, in northern Israel, don't open up a major second front. And at the end of that military operation, the Israelis transition, if you like, to some kind of follow-on. And this is where it's very difficult to picture exactly what that follow-on might be. Do they leave a vacuum or do they hand over to some kind of Arab transition force? And I think that's the cleanest we can hope for. But that could mount all the way through to, in a worst-case scenario, a very long, drawn-out military operation in Gaza. Mosul took nine months to liberate. So you could see this going on for months. The Israelis suffer considerable casualties. They lose more of the hostages, more civilian casualties. Civil disorder breaks down yet further. On top of that, you can then layer a permutation where Iranian-backed proxies on the other fronts do open up major offensive operations against the Israelis. And you get a broader conflict. All we can hope for is that the international community commits sufficient diplomatic equity to this, that a genuine peace process restarts and some kind of conversation about a two-state solution re-emerges. At some point, this always comes back to politics. And that is the only path through this. The trauma we're seeing in Gaza and what happened to Israel last month is on a unprecedented level in recent times. And so I don't think it is inconceivable to posit that this might just shock the Israelis, the Palestinians, the international community into a really long-term committed effort to find some kind of solution for the Palestinians and indeed for the Israelis. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, retired Major General Rupert Jones. The producer today was James Shield, the executive producer was Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you'd like to get in touch with us about anything you've heard on this episode or anything that you'd like us to cover over the next few weeks, then please do drop us a line at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Have a good weekend. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart 
A better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.